Okay, we're on a handheld mic today, not my uh, Britney microphone, but that's okay. Um, if the screen cuts out or bubbles blow in the worship service, just pretend that's all supposed to happen, okay? We are on an adventure today. We're so glad everybody's here. Okay, we have been um, prepping and talking and saying the name Lisa Miller for a few weeks now, saying how we are going to study this book, how she's coming to speak to us. We're all very excited about it. And today we start that three-week sermon series. Now, I was afraid that um, when reading the book, I would get kind of bogged down in all the data of it all, but it really does read like a story. So you guys are all safe. You can all go read it, and it's fun. And it has a lot of fun stuff, cool stuff to say about the developments of research in the area of mental health. So here at church, we care about health. We grow our spiritual health together. We pray for physical health concerns of one another. And sometimes, like today, we talk about mental health. Now, I'm not a mental health professional, and none of our pastors on staff are mental health professionals. But I find myself here today talking about mental health and some other days as well. Why? It's a question that prompted um, this author's research, and it's a question that we'll dive into over our weeks to together. And the question is, what is the relationship between spirituality and mental health? Today, specifically, we're going to look at attention and how we can pay attention to things in our lives and what that has to say about that relationship. If you have been around scripture very long, you know that our scripture discusses um, a really large range of topics. Today we are in the book of Psalms, and it especially does not shy away from discussing hard topics. We see Psalms of lament, where people describe pain, and then we also see Psalms of thanksgiving, where people are praising God. Our Psalm today actually knits those two together, and both exist within this psalm. We're mostly going to read the thanksgiving part but they are definitely tied. Okay, we are going to be in Psalm 40, starting at verse 1. This is easier when I have a, a, a mic on my face, not in my hand, you know? Okay. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up out of the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, he put a new song within my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put trust in the Lord. Happy are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. You have multiplied, O Lord our God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim them, they would be more than can be counted. Sacrifice an offering you do not desire, but you've given me an open ear, burnt offering, and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, here I am, Lord. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O oh Lord. I have not hidden your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from this congregation. Do not, O oh Lord, withhold your mercy from me. 
Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me safe for forever. The word of God for the people of God. Let the church say, thanks be to God. Amen. Okay, most of my professional life I have spent in youth ministry. I love the curiosity and the energy and the creativity of teenagers. Um, Their honesty inspires me and only occasionally hurts my feelings. Unfortunately, we know that um, for lots of teenagers, mental health issues are a significant issue. One in seven 10 to 19-year-olds experiences a mental health disorder. It's developmentally appropriate for teenagers to experience a wide range of emotions, including some feelings of anxiety and of depression. But these high rates are obviously concerning for those of us who care about them. About five years ago, I was in youth ministry at a different congregation, and I knew I wanted someone to come in and talk about mental health. I thought that it would benefit the kids, not realizing that I had some own, my, of my own misconceptions that needed to be rectified. Like so often happens, I had prepared a lesson for someone to teach someone else, and uh, God taught me something. So at this church, one of our volunteers um, was a woman who had just recently um, become a counselor, and I asked her if she would give a presentation, and she was super excited and spent several weeks preparing. And on the day of her presentation, I sat in the back of the room so I could watch everybody and make sure they're paying attention. But that actually wasn't a concern because everyone in the room was completely captivated by what was being said. She said that in discussing anxiety and depression, she was so adamant that neither one of them mean that we don't have enough faith in God. She said that whenever someone has depression, oftentimes the things that they've previously been interested in no longer bring them joy. She said, if you're a person of faith in a period of depression and you don't feel God in the same way, it's not that you're messed up or that God's far from you. It's just that right now your brain isn't connecting to things in the way that it typically does. No matter how you feel, God is always close by. Only at the end of the presentation did I notice that a sneaky little tear had slipped from my eye. It was so moving, and from then on, um, I have just been convinced, as so many are, that we have to talk about mental health inside of the space of the church. Now, some of us have more substantial experiences with mental illness, and if you see professionals and take medication, we affirm that as good and important. And if you are struggling and you would like to find someone who's a professional to talk to, we'd be, help, we'd be happy to get you resources. But I don't want the language of mental health to scare us away or think that we're discounted. We all have varying levels of physical health, and likewise, we all have varying levels of mental health or unhealth. The book from Lisa Miller points out several places where people might find themselves struggling. Just normal places that are hard to navigate. One place is um, after adolescence in those early 20s years where a lot of people start asking the questions, what's the point of life? Why am I here? Is there larger meaning? She describes this as part of the process of individualizing and becoming yourself. But she also says that 
that can bring a lot of sadness and disorientation. Looking for meaning and purpose can be sad and lonely. At another point, she says, um, we have the well-known midlife crisis. She prefers to call it midlife chaos and says, your world gets rearranged. Often it's the things that you've hidden from or tried to control most our deepest fears and vulnerabilities that assert themselves in midlife. We all know what it's like to experience suffering and pain. In our scripture today, the second word of the passage is wait. And it has a specific connotation in Psalms. So the verb wait expresses a straining towards the future, an anticipation of what's to come, Hope is waiting with one's whole being for the dawn. So this means there's great expectation and hope for what is to come. And why is that important in this passage? Well, because the next verse says that the person was drawn out of a pit or a bog. Now that language doesn't mean a ton to us, but in its own context, then it means grave. It's an illusion for death. But not death that comes at the end of life. In the Israelite view, this death brings about a decrease in the vitality of an individual. It's something that happens within your life. Anything that would be a threat to a person's welfare, or the Hebrew term shalom, anything that's a threat to that is death. We have freedom to participate in covenant community and we don't want anything to hinder that. So this person is waiting and hoping for God because their vitality has been decreased in some way. I wonder if we've ever felt our own vitality decrease. The psalm and uh, this specific psalm um, understand the brevity of life. And they also see God's action within life. They're paying attention Dr. Lisa Miller, after noticing how existential and spiritual questions can affect our mental health, wondered if our faith lives could have any positive impact on our mental health. She discovered that, in fact, spirituality is one of the most significant protective factors against depression in teenagers and adults. We're going to dive into some more of her research in the next few weeks, but today we're addressing the first of her findings— That is, that spiritual experiences are visible in the brain by significantly reorienting us and reorienting our attention. When we have strengthened spiritual lives, we are aware that we are a part of deep interconnectedness. One of Dr. Miller's colleagues, Dr. Mark Bierman, is at the University of Chicago, and he's done multiple studies on attention. He says that whenever we start with a goal or idea, that is top-down perception. So this is really helpful if you're scanning for ideas out in somewhere. Um, Maybe whenever you're at your house and you're about to leave for work and you're scanning for your keys, like you have keys on your mind and you're scanning for your keys and you're like, why can I not just put them on the hook where they're supposed to go every single time? But instead you have to scan your kitchen as you run out the door. No one else? Okay, never mind. Um, I don't do that either. Um, 
this top-down perception is great for keys, but it's not always the perfect thing to do. Have you guys ever heard of the term doom scrolling? Okay, this is an idea that uh, whenever you're upset about something, you go onto social media and read more about the thing that made you upset so you can get more upset. Um, whenever I'm really stressed, then I can get like nitpicky or judgmental. And so then sometimes I combined doom scrolling with that for a wonderful combination of me sliding through Instagram being like, that's not a well-written sentence. They misspelled that word. And uh, I miss out on so much doing that. Instead, bottom-up perception presents a way of seeing what's around you. In bottom-up, we have a wider range of perception, and whatever's most relevant pops out to you. In bottom-up perception, I might open up Instagram and see a, see a cooking video and remember that trying new recipes and cooking more is one thing that I'm really proud of myself for doing this past year. It might remind me of the days whenever I was just cooking for one and I felt really sad and lonely about that. And now it's an opportunity for me to invite people over for dinner, to share things with others. Bottom-up perception helps us see what we haven't previously seen. New things that we can see, the research says, can break cycles of familiar thought patterns that stir in your head and repeat themselves over and over. Seeing a wider view can help us wake up to blind spots. In the language of the psalmist, he put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to my God. God sees us when we think that we're losing vitality. God is close and God cares. This week, I'm going to try this and I'm going to challenge all of us to do it. Three or four times throughout the week, I want you to pause and notice things around you. The tree, the sounds you hear of kids playing, how do you notice God's presence with you? What does that look like? In the song we're going to sing in a minute, one of the lines says, I'm waiting here for you with our hands lifted high in praise. May that be our song this week as we pay attention to what God's doing. Amen.